0: When you think of our public services in Australia, nearly every single one of them, in theory, is there to intervene and help people in our community who need help. Housing, healthcare, education, roads, the NDIS, our emergency services. But what about our prisons? Are they there to punish or are they there to help? I guess you could argue that, in a way, the punishment of a criminal is there to help a victim of crime, to give them a sense of justice, that they matter, that their pain matters. But no amount of jail will bring back what was stolen from you, the injury that you might live with for the rest of your life, or a loved one who you lost as a result of a crime being committed. And what of the people who commit those crimes? In Australia, the age of criminal responsibility is 10 years old. Look me in the eye and tell me that a 10 or 11-year-old child has reached a level of cognitive development to consider the long-reaching implications of their actions or the consequences of being labelled a criminal for the rest of their lives. The briefest glance at the research around behaviour that we classify as criminal by children of this age is that it is often a direct response to trauma, to neglect, to unaddressed physical or or mental illness. And criminalizing a trauma response in a child instead of treating the underlying causes of that trauma is like putting a plant in a cupboard and then being pissed off that it didn't flower, so you keep it in the cupboard for longer, this time without water. Yeah, that'll teach it. Understanding how untreated trauma can lead to criminal behavior, traumatic contact with the justice system traumatic incarceration, and then the responses to those traumas, it's a difficult thing for us to talk about. Lock them up. It's an idea that I understand. And indeed, in the case of some very dangerous people, it is an appropriate response. But what kind of society are we to put people into a prison system that often not only further traumatizes them, but in itself is not primarily designed to help people who are in that system and to not help the rest of us by reintroducing into society a person who has a 53% chance of committing a crime that will affect a whole new set of innocent victims and put that person back in prison within two years. With that in mind, this week we have part two of my conversation with Zach Jones. In this story, we explore what life in prison was like and what happens once you get out. If you haven't heard part one, you may want to check it out because we're going to come into the conversation right on the cliffhanger. Before we do, we have to pay the bills. So here's some ads.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: From the age of 15, I was using drugs every day to deal with my emotions, to deal with my mental health as a crutch my psychologist because I told him I go man at night I'm just watching a highlight reel of every dumb thing I've ever done and he goes yeah well I mean these are all these emotions that you've been covering up for a very long time with drugs and alcohol there you gotta and he said to me like that that moment when you cringe and you kind of turn away from that that feeling and that that memory he goes don't do it he goes as much as you can learn to sit in those feelings and forgive yourself you know you might have done a bad thing you might have made a dickhead of yourself but at some point You have to forgive yourself. And until you do that, that junkie child is just going to keep hurting.
0: That was Zach Jones. I'm Osher Ginsberg. And this is Better Than Yesterday. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being a part of it. It's a podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday. And that's something that you hear on this show and every show will make your day today better than yesterday just by the nature of its existence. That's what we're here to do. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with the guest and Fridays, I'm here with you. We do this by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them experts in their field and what they've got to say, I certainly learn from and I certainly hope that and you do too. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a TV host. I'm a currently wandering around on two crutches guy. I'm a <laughs> a moustache grower that is proving to be unpopular with now every member of my household, including the dogs. But um, a fucker, I'm going to keep growing that fucker. Uh, what else am I? I'm pretty close. I think by the time you hear this, I think I would have already had some surgery to fix up my hip. So hopefully I'm a person that can stand on two legs for the first time in some time. So that will be bloody good. If you want to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com is where I am. And you can also find me on Instagram. It's just Osher Ginsburg on Instagram. There it is. <laughs> Shoot us a photo of where you're listing. It'd be great. This is part two of my conversation uh, with Zach Jones. So if you haven't, heard part one, uh, pause this, and we'll be here when you're back. Okay, you're back. (laughs) Let me tell you about my guest today. Zach Jones was 21 when he drove a car with four other people in it. While under the influence of alcohol and drugs, Zach ran a red light, the car went airborne, flipped, crashed into the front wall of a nursing home, and burst into flames. As a result of that, Zach went to jail, and we will talk all about that today. And just a note, we're about to talk about a young man going to prison, and so there's pretty graphic descriptions of drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, uh, self-harm, road trauma, but we, we left it all in there because it's, it's hard to hear, but it's important to hear. Zach's story is extraordinary. And uh, him and his mum have actually written it it down. The book is called Why the Fallen. You can get it right now at whythefallen.com. Enjoy part two of this
2: conversation with Zach Jones. I was remanded into into custody. That was when my jail sentence really started.
0: That's it? Do you get to say goodbye to anyone or like the clothes you're in, is the clothes you go into the van in and that's it?
2: I walked into this county courtroom in my suit and I've been to court several times. You know what I mean? and I yeah, went, and you, sat- did you
0: have your court suit? Did
2: you- <laughs> yeah, really I did. So
0: <laughs> oh, man, I'm sorry. Sorry to make that joke,
2: but no, do you know? And like that suit actually doesn't fit me anymore. Um, cause I put on 30 kilos when I was in jail. Right. Um, I was very skinny back then, but so I went and sat in the front of the courtroom, like I always did. And my, uh, you know, my mum was beside me and she's already beside herself. My lawyer taps me on the shoulder and says, no, Zach, you've actually got to go sit in the back. And this was the first time I've been to County court and I had to go sit in the prisoner dock at the back between two guards. And so I was signed in there. And actually from then on, I was referred to as the prisoner. And that's when it really dawned on me, like, I'm not leaving the same way I came in. Right. And so, yeah, the, the court proceedings went ahead. And then the judge said, look, Zach, I, I want two weeks to actually think about the sentence I'm going to hand down. So in the meantime, I'm going to remind you into custody and I will sentence you at a later date. And, uh, then I was handcuffed and led out the back and, you know, my friends and my mama are, are bawling their eyes out and, you know, I'm trying to keep a straight face for them. Um, but I just want to scream at that point. So I'm led out the back and I don't look back, but so I, they put me into this little elevator and I'm in there with these two bu- pudgy guards like this and handcuffed and, and then lower the elevator lowers is down to the cells beneath the County courthouse. And that honestly, and I, I say it in my book, that uh, that felt like I was descending into hell that elevator ride. It did. It felt like I was descending to hell. I got out and I was strip searched for the first time, not a pleasant experience. So you're led into this, this room with this crudely hung curtain on it. And these two, these two male screws. when I say screws, that's uh, jail slang for, for guard. I say it without even thinking about it. So I'll try and say guard for the listeners, but, you know, if I say screws, I'm I'm, I'm talking about guards. And, uh, yeah, you know, you remove your shirt, you remove your pants, you remove your underwear. So now you're standing there naked and then they ask you to lift up your balls, you know, um, armpits. And there's no cupping because you've got to run your fingers through your hair and and show them your hands and under your armpits and, you know, do all that with your mouth, Um, show them under your tongue and, and under your lips. And then you've got to turn around and spread your ass cheeks. And, and it is, it's really, it's really degrading. Um, and that was the first time that it happened. And uh, yeah, it was just, that was, it was all soul crushing. You know, it was in um, my head, my life was over.
0: What's When you get to jail proper, you got
2: sentenced. What was the sentence you actually got handed down? I was convicted of one count of reckless conduct endangering life and convicted of one count negligently causing serious injury and one count of driving while suspended. I was given four years for each of the negligently causing serious injury and reckless conduct endangering life. I was given four years each for each one of those, and then six months for driving while suspended. But then the judge said to me, you're going to serve a portion of this time concurrently. And so he did all the maths. And then he said, uh, so in total, you will serve a total prison sentence of four years and nine months with a non-parole period of two and a half years. And a non-parole period is two and a half years, where you're not eligible for early release. Parole is mm. early release. Yeah.
0: Do you feel that? Do you feel the judge? Did Did the judge speak with any kind of empathy, or trying to like see anything in you, or look? Look, I'm trying not to f- destroy another life by doing this.
2: Yeah. The, the, I think my judge was incredibly fair. He was very stern, you know, and he made it very clear that that jail is the only suitable penalty for, for the crimes that I have been, been charged with and found guilty of, he said, you know, you do appear to be truly remorseful. And he said, you pled guilty your earliest opportunity. He actually did tell me, he said, Zach, I actually just want to tell you that if you had have pled not guilty, I would have given you 10 years. Yeah. Wow. It, it says luck. a lot. It says
0: a lot, doesn't it, about how we as humans, at the final moment, they're like the absolute where the rubber meets the road, as far as what we as humans feel. Mm. You know, we we ask a judge to be that person who will. It's their job to decide the fate fate yeah. of somebody's life. You know, because it's we don't want it to be on us, and we want them to be the fairest person. And that what true contrition and true. Acceptance of my own actions yeah. can do in the face of even pretty and very very serious things like what you're talking about. What that can do in that situation. I,
2: I think about that a lot too, and that's why I have, you know, if anything I'm I'm thankful for that judge because the sense that he gave me saved my life. Mm. But I've often thought about how hard it would be to to do that job and to condemn someone the way that they do. Um, they take everything into account, but they're also so often criticised for the sentences that they hand down and for their judgments. And I think, you know, that would be incredible, hard, incredibly hard mm. on their
0: behalf. Whether it be, look, whether it be the film Chopper or Shawshank Redemption or Goodfellas, there's always that scene of, or uh, Blues Brothers, the first day in jail. There's mm. always that scene of the first person, you know, w- walking and transiting out of your street clothes and there you are now, you're amongst the population. What was, you know, what do you remember of that?
2: Uh, yeah, Port Phillip Prison. Uh arguably melbourne's worst jail um you know it's uh it's a horrible place and so yeah i'm i'm loaded off the bus from the county court into the holding cells or the fishbowl as it's called at port phillip which is like one big holding cell where all the prisoners that are on their way in just have to sit and wait and so you're around like massive tattered dudes and like everyone's just waiting to to get processed so they can get their cell or they can go to sleep or they can yeah. Everyone's in limbo in this cell. So everyone's in a terrible, terrible mood. Um, you go through processing, you get strip searched again. Yeah. They take all your clothes, you get put in prison greens. Then you, you box up all your property, you put a zip tie on it. Everything you come in with goes in a box. And that kind of just follows you around as you move around your jails. And then from there, you're given a bag with bedding. So like a, a blanket, a sheet, a pillow, a towel, um, and, yeah, you walk through through the yard. Um, well, actually, at Port Phillip, there's yards. So as you're walking from admissions to, for me, I was at Matilda Reese first. You're walking past all these other, other units, and, uh, and there's prisoners staring at you through the fence. And you, you might as well be walking through there naked because it is unmistakable that you are brand new to this jail when you are carrying all your possessions it's your first day of your sentence because you're carrying your bedding to yourself. And then yeah, they walked us into my particular yard and straight away, you know, there's people coming up to you going, Oh, you know, what are you in for? Are you on the patch? And what that means is, um, do you have a nicotine patch? Cause in jail, yeah. When you go through that, ask you do you smoke because there's no smoking in jails now. And they'll offer to give you a nicotine patch program. And I actually, decline that because i was like look jail is a perfect opportunity for me to quit smoking oh, so i'm saying like if you're on the patch like that's currency that's something that that you is know, cool that credit. is gold, right? right and right. so what they do is they take that patch they boil it in vinegar and then soak tea leaves in that vinegar and all the nicotine from the patch is in that vinegar and so then they roll the the tea in uh, bible paper and smoke it and it's uh and it does it has a like a the effect of smoking a cigarette And so it's a massive commodity job. No, like people get stabbed. People die because of these patches. It's it's like dead set serious. Um,
0: Addiction. Addiction was fucking crazy, man. Nicotine is one of the most addictive things. I mean, are are you the youngest guy there?
2: When I first went there, like I swear to God, yeah, I was. Um, You know, after a few weeks in Matilda, they moved me to another unit called Pennine, which was a young offenders unit. And I ended up getting um, kicked out of Pennine because – like I had an argument with one of the screws there. And so they, they kicked me out. Um, and again, I talk about this more in depth in my book, but when I was in the young offenders unit, there was one person who was younger than me and he was 18. I was 21 at the time. And so, yeah, I'm walked into Port Phillip prison and I'm surrounded by 30, 40, 50 year old, like hardened men, you know, like gangsters, just bad motherfuckers the induction billet was a murderer. The guy who like showed me my cell and everything like that was doing 18 years for killing his wife. I will say that that, that dude, I ended up moving jails and they moved into the same jail. And so I saw him again. I became very close with this person. Like he was such a nice person, a nice human being. And it's, I don't know if that sounds crazy that I'm talking about a murderer and saying like, this guy was nice, but I was so terrified when I first went to jail and then the first person I speak to is like, yeah, I'm a murderer. And, and I'm like, great, I'm going to die. The first person I talk to in jail is going to stab me in the face repeatedly. And I'm going to fucking die. But he was the kindest human being at that moment. He treated me with, yeah. with understanding and compassion and, um, you know, he couldn't couldn't be nicer to me. If you need anything, just come and see me. You know, like, you know, come and talk to me. And and that was so. Because you've, you've described
0: kind of like the the hardened kind of guys with faded forearm tattoos. Back when a forearm tattoo didn't mean that you're good at yeah. making a, a soy latte, it meant I've fucking killed people. Yeah. You know, th- those are people who've maybe had a life of a particular course of action. Mm. But I can only imagine as well that there the uh, jails. In Australia at least, are possibly also full of people who made a fucking dumb dumb, dumb choice on the worst day of their life,
2: yeah, and that's it, yeah, uh, you know, in a moment of of anger, they chose to react with violence mm. and they've you know they're, they're paying for it for the rest of their lives you know yeah. part of my part of my public speaking to to young kids is is about is about anger and about violence. Um, yeah. And, and I do, and I reference that. And I say that I met some of the most incredibly intelligent, you know, kind human beings who, who battle with anger and who could never keep a lid on their anger. And there was as a result of that, they threw their lives away. You know, they hit someone, mm. that person didn't get up. They picked up a knife in a moment of anger and put it in someone. Hey. Um, and there's no coming back from that. Mm. There's no, again, there's no sorries. It's no, I didn't mean to kill this person.
0: As you mentioned, jail saved your life. you said that a mm. number of times already. The jail can also be uh, criminal TAFE where you can, mm. oh, right, I didn't know how to do that, but now I do. Can't wait to get out, so I can do that with those guys who I met. Uh, yeah. And the cycle repeats and you go back in and back in.
2: What, did, did you? Was there a junction for you? Was there a point where you could have gone all the way? Yeah, from the very start. From the very start, you know, there was, um, you know, young blokes and, and, and stuff who are, like myself, who are scared and don't know where to, where to turn in jail. And you never know people's intentions in jail, and so you know you get approached by like these these menacing-looking dudes, and there's little bells and whistles going off in the back of your head, like now nah, something's wrong here. And they do that, you know, they kind of groom you a little bit, and uh, you know, do you want to come help me help me do this, or do you want to do you want to come do this? And they will. They'll just start steering you on the wrong direction, and then before you know it, you're like, you know, you're running errands for them and all that kind of stuff. From the very start, jail has absolutely everything you need to either turn your wife around and become a better person or become a career criminal and become very good at it and it's it's totally up to you it's it's hard to get education in jail like it's not it's not easy there's there's red tape and there's there's bureaucracy and it's they put uh, rehabilitation second to actually just punishment and yeah. and just keeping keeping prisoners out of sight and out of mind the whole prison system is a, is a fucking lie they don't care if it's bad for, like, you got to remember, jails are a business, right? They get paid $150,000 per year per prisoner, right? They love return customers. It does not behoove the prison system to reform someone so that they never come back. That is a fundamental part of jail. That's not like a conspiracy theory. That's just fucking business, right?
0: Isn't that wild when you think about what uh, a super intensive inpatient residential rehab costs less than that Mm. and it makes me think about the criminality of addiction versus uh you know instead of a criminal approach to addiction to a treatment approach to addiction
2: yeah it'd be cheaper for goodness sake i got asked before anything else when i was getting processed right i was asked before anything else do you want to get on the nicotine patch and are you coming off heroin and if i had said yes to either they would have put me on the nicotine patch and they would have put me on the methadone program that's before they ask me, do I want to do education? Do I need psychological help? Do I need counseling? Like, do you understand how fucking fundamentally wrong like that is? From the start, they're not talking about, let's help. Let's get you the help you need. Let's sort that trauma out. You're a hurt person. It's immediately, all right, let's just, let's just keep them coasting through their jail, hooked on drugs, nicotine patch. So they'll get out, they'll start smoking again. Methadome, so they'll get out with an opioid addiction. Like it it's so fucking backwards. The first thing that should happen is when you go to jail, they should say, All right, first thing we're doing, uh, you're getting counseling. They have fantastic psychologists in jail. The psychologists in jail saved my life. Archie, man, I love you. If you ever watch this, I love you, dude. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um And they should ask you, Do you want to get education? How can we help you for your release? Man, these these blokes need qualifications, they need jobs. You know, they need actual help getting back on their feet. Getting out of jail, that's a different world in there. And you get out and and now you're constantly uncomfortable in the outside world. And that's why it's so easy for people to go back. You know what I mean? It's, um, and they've got nothing that, you know, they can't go and get a job. They don't know how to go and get a job. They don't know where to start.
0: And em- employing, getting any, you know, em- employment checks and things like that. There's yeah.
2: employers that, he won't even take a chance, will they? One hundred percent. You know, um, and so yeah, that initial when you get out, your first three months is when you're at the highest risk of reoffending and yeah. and going back. And and I can understand why. I was lucky. I um I hit the ground running, got a job as soon as I got out. You know, I had I had the support. I, I went and lived back with my family, and I had that to really mm. get me on the right track. Plus, I wrote this book while I was in jail, and I knew that I had a clear goal in my head that I wanted to stop other people doing what I did what was the so you started you started writing in jail and did you seek out a therapist or did the therapist come to you yeah do you know it started because I I went and saw the nurses and the doctors and because I wasn't sleeping at all I couldn't sleep and I was doing my head in. I was going insane and so I said to these doctors and I'll never forget this right one doctor's got his back to me, and he's just typing away everything that I'm saying on the keyboard, and then there's another doctor talking to me, and I say, look, I, I can't sleep, and they're like, okay, we'll try to it on sleepers." and this doctor's typing away in the corner, and I said to him, look, with all due respect, drugs and alcohol and substances are what put me here, and I really just – I don't want medication. I don't want drugs, and so this doctor who's typing a million miles an hour just stops and then goes – and looked at me, like they've never heard that before. Like looked at me, like what did we just hear? And, and then he's like, starts clicking through his computer, like deep into his computer, and he's like, oh, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got something here about meditation. And, and after five minutes of like trying to find this file, he prints off these, these things on med- meditation and mindfulness, and kind of hands them to me. And so I did. not I, I went back and I read them. But he also said, as I'm leaving, he goes, Do you want me to? do you want to see the psychologist? And I said, desk, please. That's
0: amazing you had that moment, mate. Amazing that you saw the opportunity to interrupt the cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Because it really is only once we see oh, it just keeps going. No matter what I try, it's the same thing. I have to try something else. My best thinking, my best ideas keep ending up. And I have to try a new idea. I have to just stop doing this thing that I've always done. Yeah were you resistant to some of the, the rough work that it can take to
2: come to acceptance of your, you know, actions and things? No, I mean, I was so broken and I hated myself so much. Right. And, you know, when I was sentenced four years, nine months to a 21 year old, sounds like the rest of your life.
0: It's a quarter, it's a quarter of your life. Yeah. That is, like,
2: that's and that's what it is. It's a quarter of my life mm-hmm. so far. And so, you know, my, my world's ending. I'm, you know, I'm thinking of suicide and I had a I'm few sorry. moments when I was, I was very close. I didn't want to hurt my mum anymore. She was suffering enough. But so when I, just after that strip, that first strip search in the county court, I made this like vague promise. This, this part of me, like there was this hopelessness just washing around my head. But this one little voice in my head said, just leave jail in better shape than when you come in, when you came in. Wow. wow. And I, wow. And like, yeah, like fucking that, that, I don't know where it came from, but it really did stick with me. It was this easily achievable, like benchmark, just, just go to bed each day, better, a better human being than when you woke up. And so it was an easily achievable goal for me to carry through my whole sentence. And so when I was faced with moments to, to do drugs in jail, there's plenty of them in jail. When I was faced with opportunities to, to react with violence, and unfortunately you, you do have to sometimes, but in moments where you actually can just, when you're angry, react patiently. Think about your parole and think about the consequences. That little go to sleep tonight, a better human being than when you woke up. And so when I was sitting in that, that doctor's office and they offered me sleepers, it was like that little voice said, no, like, okay, well, drugs got you here go to bed tonight better than when you woke up. And so I said no to them. And I um, said, man, I I suffered. It, it wasn't easy. It's been a long time for me to be able to sleep without, you know, having nightmares, without, you know, just laying in bed with your eyes open and just replaying every dumb thing you've ever said, every dumb embarrassing thing you've ever done. You know it. You know, every single time you were drunk and made an idiot yourself and you're sitting on you're sitting staring at your, your bedroom ceiling and just watching a high, highlight reel of every fuck up you've ever made and you cry yeah. and, and you hate yourself and but you get better each night. You get a little bit better.
0: It still happens. I've been sober over 12 years. Yeah. Um, but then I think of the, and then my, my guy, the guy that kind of guides my sobriety journey. He said the most extraordinary words to me once. He says, it's okay, pal. You get to live the rest of your life not being that guy anymore. And those words have really helped me come out of those moments and go, yes, that did happen. I did do that. Mm. And I am sorry that I did that. I can make it better by living the rest of my life not doing the kind of thing that I would have done. But yeah, they still those moments still happen yeah my, and it's, it's, it's okay because it's a little reminder of like yep don't let your guard down because it's yeah, waiting <laughs> yeah that's what's waiting for you when you pick up your next yeah, drink
2: and, absolutely and my uh, my, my psychologist because I told him I go man at night I'm just watching a highlight reel of every dumb thing I've ever done and he goes yeah well I mean these are all these emotions that you've been covering up for a very long time with drugs <laughs> and alcohol They're, you gotta and he said to me like that that moment when you cringe and you kind of turn away from that that feeling and that that memory he goes don't do it he goes, as much as you can learn to sit in those feelings and, yeah. and forgive yourself. Yeah. You know, you know, you might've done a bad thing. You might've made a dickhead of yourself, but at some point you have to forgive yourself. And until you do that, that junkie child is just going to keep hurting. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, there was a lot of work that went into it and and doing it, doing it. You know, and so I'm talking from the age of 15, I was using drugs every day to deal with my emotions, to deal with my mental health as a crutch. So, you know, you talk about suspended maturity, right? Where the age that you really start habitually using drugs, your, your mental state stays at that age. So I'm now a 21 year old in jail, but I'm a 15 year old in my head. And I have, I am completely ill-equipped to deal with my own emotions, and yeah. that's fucked up, but that happens. Do you know up, walking around the yard? It's like seeing seeing grown toddlers. <laughs> they get angry and they just flip out and throw a tantrum. Usually yeah. violent in jail, but yeah. you know they started using drugs that young. Like you actually see a child when you look at them.
0: Yeah. And but it's not like I've got a, our, 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 We've got two kids, and our youngest is three. So it's not it's not my eighteen kilo son with an octonauts toy throwing it at me. It's a Hundred and twenty kilo, thirty six year old with a shiv. Yeah, you know, yeah, with, an, with an eye. But, pick who's but the same it. emotional response, yeah. the same flailing
2: arm. it's yeah. the same. It's the same fucking thing. You man, you hit the nail on the head there, man. Yeah, and so yeah, and you know, jail's a very steep learning curve. Oh, so fuck. I had to, I had to age, you know, six years in, yeah. in a very short window of time. Yeah. um, it's sink or swim in jail, and so I did. You know, I. I finally, you know, unsuspended my maturity and, and allowed myself to grow and develop and learn how to, yeah. ha, how to deal with my emotions properly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Was there any role of, uh, I mean, nutrition's a bit tough in jail, I'm sure, but is there any role that exercise played in
2: your headspace? Absolutely. Um, so I was 60 kilos wringing weight. I'm 6'2, right? And I was 60 kilos wringing wet around. when I went to jail. Um, I was skin and bone. Uh, you know, and you know that's through overworking, not eating and only doing drugs. And so I went to jail and that's the thing, like I joke when I, when that little voice said to me, leave jail in better shape than when you came in, I had no idea what that looked like, but like a decent meal and a fucking shower is an improvement on when I came in. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so I did, I, I started up. You know, they have like these little body workout stations in the middle of the yard and they have a gym, but I started out, you know, just trying to do some some pull-ups or trying to do some dips and I started doing push-ups in my cell at night when I couldn't sleep, started doing sit-ups, these basic movements and I became very good at them. And then I kind of worked up the confidence to go to the gym one day and I probably looked like the, the gym equivalent of a baby giraffe. You know, I start lifting the cables, you know, and doing bicep curls, you I start using the leg, leg press machine and, and I'm looking around and, and I'm kind of watching what other people are doing and I, I start trying to do that too. And uh, then one day this guy comes up to me and goes, hey, bro, do you want to train with me? Massive dude. He goes, you want some help, you know? And uh, and this guy, yeah, he just he, he kind of took me under his wing and, and showed me the basics. And so for about four months I trained with him. He got out. And he'd instilled this ability to actually train, isolate my muscles, you know. So I started training chest, back, shoulders, arms, legs. It's five days a week. And I'm lifting weights. And then and then I met this other guy who is, you know, um, he's been in the fitness industry a very long time. Mountain of a man. Unbelievable. But has been training since he was 15. And mm. so I spent the next 12 months training with him, you know. I subscribe to men's health. Saw your pretty mug on the front cover one day. <laughs> and you know what's funny is I I said to myself when I saw that, and I was training at this point already and I was I knew what I was doing. I was doing cardio and boxing as well. Yeah. You know, there, there were two days a week where I was training three times a day. Um but I I saw that and I was like man this fucking guy, I want to I want to meet this guy, I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> you know, it didn't it mention your podcast. And, um, and I, I knew that I really wanted to do it. And I said to myself, when I got out, I was going to try and reach out to you. And, uh, and then, you know, I sent that, I sent that email and I jokingly said to my mom, you know, Osha doesn't know it yet, but I, I'm going to be talking to him. Um, and like, I was just being really hopeful. Like I, I, I genuinely, I almost didn't do it. I didn't believe that I would be able to, but I did. And, okay. and here I am massive, Mate, massive um... honor. Mate, I'm so grateful that you did. I've got to say, man, I'm, I'm
0: grateful that for that article because when we did it, I think there's a, I think it was like four or five pages. I think there's about 400 words that actually talked about the workout. The rest of it was just all about, I, work, I use exercise for my brain. Mm. And they were cool with me talking about alcohol and, and anxiety and, you know, mental illness and that exercise makes it all better. And they were cool with that. And I'm just so grateful for them that they would do that, mm.
2: let alone the fact they put a vegan on the cover. I mean, good God. <laughs> but, so, yes, in answer to your question, fitness, again, saved my life. You know, and mm. I'm incredibly grateful. I, I spent every day training. When I was angry, I trained. When I couldn't sleep, I trained. When I was frustrated, I trained. And every day I would leave the gym feeling good about myself, naturally high. Mm. At the end of yeah. the day, you know, like I will – this is a heavily contested thing right. I will be a fucking addict till the day I die. Just cuz I'm not using. And people hate this. Like recovering addicts fucking hate when I say this. Like no, I'm I'm still a fucking addict. I will be an addict till the day I die. And I talk about this in Why the Fallen, right? That I need an addiction like a car needs a driver. Like it just doesn't work. One doesn't work without the other. And so my ability to stay clean and not need drugs anymore is because I found That crutch and that high and that addiction in in training and in helping people, you know, and in the passions that I've developed, like I'm addicted to those things. But first and foremost, gym is where I go to to blow off steam, to 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 process my emotions, to get a natural high because I walk out of the gym feeling high. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Oh, mate, I absolutely do. I'm uh, I'm touch weight bearing only, so I can't can't put my right foot to the floor for another month. So you've only, you've
2: only been out of prison for not even a year, is it? Eight months. Wow. And the one, the one constant from transitioning from jail to the outside world was, was gym as well. I, yeah. Um, you know, you get out. Everyone's moving faster. Everything moves very slow in jail, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Everyone's talking a different language to you now. When you go in, people are talking to you in jail and you don't understand what the fuck they're saying because it's its own language in there. Oh it's like nicknames for everything and yeah. uh, secret secret words it's and like stuff like like slang, slang for everything you know yeah. so and so now you find yourself talking and people are like what the fuck are you say you know yeah. what i mean and it's hard and then you realize like how much time you've just wasted of your life yeah. you know people that you you know have progressed with their lives and and it's like you've just woken up from like cryogenesis And so you deal with a lot of these, these feelings of worthlessness and you deal with a feeling of not belonging anymore. Did that, did that kind of source code of go to bed a little bit
0: better than you woke up continue? Did you seek out a psychologist? Did you seek out a transitional pathway there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so look, and a lot of criminals will talk shit about parole and the parole board, right? It is a fuck around. It is frustrating as hell. They know it is, right? But they have a duty of care, not just to you, right? They have, their, their primary duty of care is to the public. They need to make sure that when they let you out on parole, you're not a danger to the public and you're not going to be a danger to the public. That is their primary concern. Yeah. Next to that is helping you transition. So they do, they ask you, you know, how are you going? You know, do you want to get some courses and, and stuff like that? And they did that. I'm, I'm studying at the moment. I'm doing civil construction. Nice you know, which is really, really good. But, you know, I got working from the day I got out. That was a massive thing. And I was anxious and like, you know, I was, I I struggled the first couple of weeks just dealing with like anxiety of being out out in the open world. There were the most random things that scared the hell out of me. Seeing like just kitchen knives just there. No, you know, um, or seeing like, cause I got out to a minimum security facility where we actually did have kitchen knives, but and all the musters, and musters account, if they weren't in the knife block, you were in big trouble and they're like, where the fuck are the knives? Right? It's serious. And so, you know, I'm, I'm at home and I'm, I'm mucking around in the kitchen and I turn around and there's a knife missing from the knife, knife block. I have full-blown fucking anxiety. Where the fuck's the knife? And mum's like, Zach, relax. It's in the dishwasher. Oh, yeah, right. we have a dishwasher. Like, right. And so you're dealing yeah. with all these, like, really confronting emotions. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, gym was the right. one constant, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, I train a good life and, and everything's really fresh and rubberized and in jail, all the equipment's rusted and, you know, there's jagged metal on them and stuff. And but so I was training in this really nice, clean environment. And so I had that and I had a job and man, I was just so grateful for both of those things. And I still am. Um,
0: how do you... I mean, I guess you'd only really disclose to people when it needs to, but, you you know, if people ask you, you know, where have you been? Are you, you know, what do you tell
2: them? Yeah, look, I tell them I I went to jail and I tell them why. I told them in 2017, I crashed my car, drink, driving, and I very nearly killed myself and four people. And I was sentenced to four years, nine months in jail. And I served two and a half. I say I deserve to go to jail for what I did. If you crash your Uh car, drink, driving, like, you deserve to go to fucking jail, like, and this is coming from someone who drank, drove from the second they got their license. I'm not talking at my yeah. ass. I'm talking as a perpetrator. Yeah. Like if you get behind the wheel, just because you don't mean to hurt somebody doesn't mean you won't. And you might get away with it a hundred times, but you fuck up once, and you're seriously going to not only fuck up your life, but somebody else's as well. The ripple effect, you know. Just in in New South Wales the other day. Oh my I, god, I, I was
0: gonna, I was, I was gonna ask you about that, you know, because yeah. when you see a. Uh, a news story like that. So basically we're recording this in, uh, if you're listening to this in five years, hi, it's 2022 in September. And there was just, uh, there was an accident in Picton, which is a small community. It's just on the outskirts of Sydney and five kids, uh, two grade 11s and three grade, grade nine kids all died and the 18-year-old driver survived. So when you read that, what goes through your mind, Zach? Um,
2: first of all, I feel an incredible amount of, of guilt because I, I see that and I feel bad because it's like everyone in that, you know, you know five, five people died in that car crash. Everyone lived in mine and mine was incredibly bad. Um, you know, there are photos in my book and on my website and social medias of the crash. It's a horrific crash. And so my first question is why? You know what I mean? People... You know, and I can't say it very often, but I I feel horribly bad for that driver because I know what he's about to go through. I was in jail with culpable drivers and the weight, you know, people in the myopic court of public opinion, that person is guilty and deserves absolutely nothing and is just a piece of shit and a scumbag and this and that. And and what people don't see is hmm. that he carries the fact that he killed five people with him for the rest of His life. And you can say, oh, he deserves that and and all of that. But that is going to destroy him every single day for the rest of his life. Yeah. I think
0: the next day I read in the news, a a parent of one of the 14 year old girls, the quote in the news was, I really feel for that boy. You know, this is a kid, this is a person who just lost their 14 year old daughter. And they had empathy and compassion for the driver. Beautiful. And like we want to have that knee jerk, yeah, lock him up, fucking, who cares? Let him, let him see the light of day again, yeah. And it's 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 uncomfortable to allow ourselves to feel empathy for a perpetrator. Yeah. But no one, no one wants to be the person that killed five children. Mm.
2: Nobody. But so look, and I I was on Sunrise about it. I did. I I reached out to to radio stations and stuff to to weigh in, and because at the end of the day, I have this story that I can share. And I have this message that, that teams do relate to, you know what I mean? I've, I've made all those mistakes. I've gone through all of those things. And so when I saw that, it was just a dead set reminder that, of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I need to get my message out there. But I did, I dealt with a lot of, a lot of really sad, sad feelings. Um, the only thing that kind of really allows me to forgive myself for what I did is the thought that by using it to stop other people from doing it, that is the only thing that makes makes something good come out of out of my crash. Mm. So, you know, without that I still deal with a lot of guilt I would be guilty and shameful for what I did till the day I die. And I didn't kill anybody. You know, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now if I did.
0: Just a little moment away from our conversation with Zach to let you know that if you would like to hear an ad-free version of this show, you can. It's there waiting for you at patreon.com slash osher. There's also full video episodes there, which is exciting. Uh, We're back with Zach in just a jiffy. Um, But first, we've got to pay the piper. This is
1: Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you to get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: When you go and speak at schools, for example, yeah. say you're standing in front of a thousand kids, mm. how quickly can you go, that was me, I know that crew, you're, I'm talking exactly to you guys, because everybody else, but it's you four guys right there.
2: So I do I do presentations for an organization called TRAG. And the first one of theirs that I attended, I didn't actually speak at. I just watched them and watched the presentation. And it was at Frankston High School, which is a pretty rough area. Oh, yeah, And I was very sad and frustrated that I didn't get up and speak that day because it just wasn't. I was only there just to watch TRAG speak. <laughs> and so TRAG is made up of first responders, police, SES, ambulance. Uh, and they talk about the impact and, and all aspects of road trauma. And they show really graphic photos Mm. of car crashes and bodies in car crashes and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, I'm sitting at the front and I can hear, I can hear the young me, the group of young me's in the back laughing and cracking jokes. And, you know, all these really graphic photos are coming up on the screen and I can hear them joking and laughing. And so after that, I incorporated into my presentation Um, at the last one I did, there actually weren't any, any Americans. Everyone took this very seriously, which I was very, very happy to see. but I call those people out in my presentation and I say, I want you to look very closely at the people who are cracking jokes and, and who are laughing and who are taking this, this like, like it's some kind of joke and watch people when they leave this presentation as well. If they're laughing and cracking jokes and big noting it and whatever, be very aware of those people because that was me. And so those people that are laughing and making a line of this situation are the ones who think it's not going to happen to them. And those are the ones that are going to do it. And I say in my presentation, I know this because I'm that person. Mr. Big Note up the back who's been laughing this whole time, mate, you should be very fucking scared because I'm you. I was the same kid. All laughs, all jokes, it's all a fucking game, but it's not. Mm. And so it's a matter of actually having the collective recognize that is the problem and it's yeah. not about calling the kid out and embarrassing him but it's about understanding the mindset and the mentality that leads to reckless behavior yeah yeah i was
0: and that like, kid when when he says it's cool i can give us a ride it's cool I'll uber yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah wow that's that's wild that you're able to do that and mate, i really hope that i hope that works i mean i've been a 16 year old in one of those in a room full of boys who are equally like, you know, this is our territory and you're a newcomer, we're going to make you pay. Mm. I know how rough, how nothing could have been said to me and it wouldn't have made it through my brain, mm. you know, I, nothing would have happened. I mean, God, I think the first time someone said to me, are you really sure you want to drink like this all the time? I think I was 20. Mm. I, I didn't get sober. I just stopped drinking till 36. Like
2: I didn't fucking listen. Yeah. I like, never, but you got to try, you got to do something. I think you can't save them all, right? But I have this belief, right, that by changing the culture. So, like, the people like you and me, the kids who are like you and me, who knew better and who you couldn't talk to, right? Mm. There's no way you can get a message through to those kids. But if you can get your message through to the people directly around that kid, Mm. if you can have a strong anti-drink driving message, anti-reckless behavior, anti-binge drinking message, In all the responsible people around that kid, by that kid's, you know, one or two responsible friends, and you can empower those two people to call the likes of you and me out Mm. when they're drinking too much, when they're thinking of getting behind the wheel, when they're about to make a dickhead of themselves. Watch me
0: walk over this fence. It's going to be amazing.
2: No, don't do that. You're about to be a dickhead. (laughs) You're about to hurt yourself. If you empower people around the troubled drinkers, right? Yeah. To not allow that kind of behaviour, you're going to have a far stronger yeah. impact. Yeah, yeah.
0: Not that it's their responsibility to save the idiot.
2: It's not. You know, it's no. But I get what you're saying. Like, but in those moments of yeah. when he's about to jump in in a, in a car, yeah, there's there's a potential to stop yeah. that kind of stuff.
0: go mate. I, I could honestly, I could talk to you for hours, mate. I mean, I'm just so grateful that you. I'm really grateful for your email. I'm so grateful that you took the time to even write that email. And the moment it came in, I said straight to Rachel, I sent it straight to Rachel, we've got to get this guy on. Um, thank you for rescheduling. I've had some, all kinds of shit happen this year, but I'm grateful that we made had the time to do it. Yeah. Um, what you've got to say is really important. And I'm on, I'm on crutches till like, a couple months from now, so I can't lift shit. But my doctor assures me that at some point I will be able to deadlift again. And when I do, Zach Jones, I'm gonna come down to Melbourne and you and me, we're gonna we're gonna sling some iron around just for, just to do it. <laughs> well, that would be that would be an absolute <laughs> honor. I, I love what it does to my head. And considering I can't run, I'm really grateful for it and how it helps me work through stuff.
2: So let me, know? let me ask you this. I've I've got to know, right? And this is yeah. very valuable to other people. Your your positive addiction, Jim. You can't. You can't train at the moment. So yeah. Where is your outlet, and how are you coping oh, at the moment?
0: A lot of breathing. So two really powerful uh, techniques that I use are uh, polyvagal breathing, which is um, an inhale that is half the length of the exhale. So you start with three in, six out, and mm-hmm. um, because we can, that's the way that we can consciously affect our vagus nerve, which um, regulates our parasympathetic nervous system, the one that we don't control, the one that makes my heart mm. beat and you know my pupils dilate and my bowels work. We can stimulate the vagus nerve into a calming response by changing our breathing, yeah, which is but, uh, unbelievable. No other animal can do that. And so polyvagal breathing really helps. I've been dealing with a lot of pain over the last year and a half. So I've been like really into um, I'm out of pain now, which is amazing, but I've been into a lot of um, working with my pain psychologist on being with a discomfort and just going and being with the impermanence of it. Les, it fucking hurts right now, five seconds later. Does it still hurt like it did five seconds ago? Mm. Actually, no, it hurts a little differently 10 seconds ago. Now it hurts. Okay, it's different. And just being with the impermanence of the discomfort and being willing to be with discomfort. Mm. And the other breathing one I do is a parasympathetic sigh. Um, which I did on stage. The other night I did this thing at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and someone got like 400 people in the room. I've got a panel of, you know, four huge thinkers on the stage moderating this thing. And someone gets up and starts talking about climate and my body just, I've, you know, still got a bit of the fusion going on. And so my body just goes into this giant panic response and I want to shit my pants. I'm like, I'm in front of 400 people. This is being live streamed. It's not going to be good. And if you, you know, they're probably cut away from me to the person responding. But if you watch, I'm doing this particular breath, this uh, uh, um, physiological sigh. I did about eight in a row. Wow. When I was on Q&A last, I talked about this on this show, I, I did it. You can clearly see me doing it, but that's the way that I downregulate. Mm. Um, the other thing that I do, Zach, is I try to be as present as I possibly can, mm. and it helps that I have a toddler who I'm trying to give language to. The, the theory is that whatever words you say in front of your, your if they're, if they're pre-vocal or they just started speaking, whatever words you're saying now, they will use in a year. So, it's when we walk down the street, there's a tree, there's another tree, it's like, there's a melaleuca, there's a gum tree, there's a, you know, frangipani, there's a hibiscus, you know, it's like naming everything. And being in those moments of presence, trying to be as, as present as possible, just doing a little moment like that, naming every single thing on my desk, or, you know, recognizing the feeling of the shirt on my skin, and a couple of breaths, that really helps. That really, really, really helps. That and I'm on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is fantastic. (laughs) Really helps. Really helps having the having the SSRIs on board yeah. um, allows all that stuff to work a lot better. Excellent. I work a lot better. So, but man, I really, dude, I miss it. Like the first couple of weeks of being on crutches when I couldn't move my body, I remember it's the same feeling I used to get. I used to run every single day. And if I'd miss two days of running, i just kind of get itchy all over. Yeah, It's like, I just got to fuck, fuck, just got fucking run. Just got to run. And then- That oh. desire for like autonomy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that forward motion. You know, I miss being on my bicycle. I miss all that. But yeah, I've, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of- lot of breathing. And thankfully, because uh, the other thing, having a toddler, having a small person in your life, you have to do the down regulation for both of you. Mm. They can't really do it themselves. So if he's having a tantrum or if he's, and a tantrum is just another word for this young person, their brain, the regulator, the regulatory parts of their brain haven't even started growing yet. He doesn't know how to be calm. He knows how to be this and that's it. So we have mirror neurons so they mimic your breathing. And down regulating in the face of screaming, crying, fingernails, you name it. Like doing all that kind of down regulating, trying to be with him in those moments, try to, you know, as much as I can. And, you know, that's really, really helped, Zach, like mm. in a huge way. It's, that's yeah, it's amazing. a very
2: valuable biblical uh, lesson. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. it's hard. Don't get me wrong. Like, I really want to be off crutches mm. and I really want to be able to stand up on two feet and, you know, not have to get changed holding onto a, thing and like falling over and everything drops and I've got a bag I have to carry because I can't hold anything when I walk from here to there. Like mm. just taking, take for granted that I can walk to the kitchen holding a plate. I can't do that, you know, because I have to use these crutches. So wow. It is like being with that frustration and just being willing to be with the frustration. And those things have been really, really helping me if that's any value to you at all.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's valuable to the listener as well. I mean, I know there's going to come a time, you know, where there's a strong possibility I won't be able to train for whatever reason. Something might happen, might have an injury or whatever. And, and it's valuable for me to know, and it's valuable for for other people like me to know that that's not the only way, you know, to deal with the process, those emotions. But in terms of, you know, when you were, when you were talking about pain regulation and, and stuff, you know, I do a lot of yoga and in jail, this small Vietnamese man actually, like personally trained me with yoga it was really crazy. Wow. Um has made me incredibly flexible. But so yoga has done a lot for my for my yeah. mental health as well. Um yeah but
0: the breathing's a big part breathing's a big deal, man. People really underrate
2: it. But it, it taught me this really incredible thing about pain is there's yeah. there's certain stretches that are absolutely agonizing that mm. physically hurt. And so you know I started off I do it for 10 seconds and they would be like no that hurts too much. And now there are certain stretches where I can sit indefinitely and the pain doesn't lessen, right? But I I found I call it like a ceiling, right? Like you hit the roof. So it it the pain increases, 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 and then it stops, right? And it, it hurts yeah. this much forever. Yeah. But yeah. it becomes like it becomes a pain, like you just when you accept it. It's not getting worse. It's just staying where it is. Yeah.
0: And then you. And if you're not if you're not injuring yourself, yeah. it is. And this is what I talk about with my pain psychologist. It's just a sensation. Yeah. Like like the sensation of my track pants on my leg right now. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just a sensation that we have over time, used as a very good message to be like, oh, something's wrong. Yeah. I need to be afraid of this sensation. Yeah. But if you are willing to be with it, and incrementally you build up your ability to be with it. Yeah. Um, it becomes less of a threat. And yeah, a, it's a fascinating thing to talk about. Mate, I'm just so grateful I got a chance to connect oh, with you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. You're amazing. If there's any way that I can help you, if there's anything at all that I can do to assist you as you, whatever the next thing is that you do, you've got a lot to speak about. You've got a lot to share. And I, mm-hmm. I certainly hope that you, know, you, you continue on this pathway, man. And, yeah, I, know, I'm, I'm not
2: sure if I've given you my number, but I'll, I'll make sure I send it to your executive producer. Um, yeah, man. Because, yeah, look, I mean, dude, there's so much that I can learn from you, um, you know, about helping people and, and you are an incredibly wise human being. And But, look, I, I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely appreciate you having me on the show. It's like such a tremendous honour. Um,
0: uh, I, I, I'm, I'm the one who's honoured Zach. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, buddy.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And there it is. That's the first party we we've done in a while, but gee, I'm glad we took the time because there's, there's a lot in there. And it, I think it was worth letting the two halves of that conversation breathe in themselves because by the time you get to the prison stuff, the early part, there's just so much to process. I, I hope you enjoy that conversation. You got out of it as much as I did. I'm so grateful that that you listened. Thank you so much for being here. I'd love to hear what you thought. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'd love to hear how you reacted to that. If you were challenged by anything, I'd love to know. Did you process anything? Did you think, think about you? anything differently? I sure did. <sighs> Send us your email at gmail.com. Also, you Also, find me on Instagram. Thanks heaps to everyone that helped me make the show today. Bree Steele, research, support, and extra production bits and pieces. Andy Marr, the magnificent wizard with the uh, digital editing slicer, cutting and pasting and creating the audio and video for this show. Thanks also to Toe Hider, who made all the music, and Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of the lot of the everything. That's it. I'm back here on Wednesday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful
2: things.